Genesis chapter 3 and Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start uh, in chapter 3, uh, verse 13. God's word says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, that's Eve, He said, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now turn over to Luke chapter 2 very quickly, if you're following along in the app, the scripture's there as well. Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those on whom his favor rests. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over this word today as we enter into the Christmas season, as we look to the story of how God, you became a man and dwelt among us so that you might save us. Lord, would you help me today to communicate the truth of your word? Help us today to understand your word, receive your word and be transformed by the power of your word. In Jesus name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. The Christmas season, it can seem like is all about waiting. It's all about waiting. Uh, when I was a kid, when, or when you're a student, you, you wait for Christmas break to begin and school to get out. You start counting down the days for school to get out. Um, you're waiting in line at the mall to get that special gift that you want to get for someone. Or nowadays, you're waiting on the Amazon box to show up on your front porch to, for that gift that you wanted to get someone. Or, or waiting in holiday traffic. Or if, you know, if you're a certain age, you're waiting for Santa to come. You're waiting for that Christmas morning to get here. Now, if you're like me, I have distinct memories growing up of family Christmases at my grandparents' house, and there would be a whole big tree with gifts all around. I mean, it was just amazing as a little kid. And you know, you had, you had to wait to eat dinner before you could go open the gifts. And sometimes my family they would torture you and say, okay, we're done eating, but we have to do the washing up before we can go open the gifts. And it was just waiting. It just seemed like there was all this waiting that took place, waiting in line then again at the mall to take back the gift you didn't want to get the one that you did want. You know, there's just all kinds of waiting going on at Christmas time. And so with that thought in mind, I felt like the Lord was leading me to kind of preach a Christmas series entitled Waiting on God. 
I said a few moments ago during worship that Advent, the season that we're in, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, it's the time where the church looks back at the story of Israel as Israel was waiting on the arrival of a Messiah, waiting on the arrival of a Savior to come and rescue them. And so we relive that story uh, every December. We go through and we read about uh, the angel coming to Mary and the nine-month journey and then the journey to Bethlehem and, and waiting for the baby all these kinds of things. We read about the people who lived in great darkness have now seen a great light. And we read about waiting for the Messiah to come and He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Fire. All those things that we hear about, we relive the story about waiting on God, waiting for the Savior to come. And so this morning in Genesis chapter 3, the text I read, we read about the first man and the first woman in, the, in human history, Adam and Eve. They live in a perfect world and they're placed in a perfect habitat that is the perfect environment designed just for them to enable them not just to survive, but to thrive and flourish in life. They have everything they need. They have a perfect relationship with their creator. They have a divine given assignment to rule and reign over the creation that God has placed them in. But you get to chapter 3 and you find out a serpent comes to them and he twists God's words. He plants seeds of doubt in their mind about what he really did say and what he didn't say. He gets them, so the serpent gets them to doubt what God said and gets them to lose trust in who God is. And they become so deceived by this wicked serpent that they do the one thing. There was only one rule. They do the one thing they had been forbidden by God from doing. And there was only one. We complain about all the rules we have to follow and all the things we have to do. Listen, if you only had one rule, I promise you, you'd find a way to break it. They believe, due to the serpent's deception, that they know better than the one that created them. And because they've been led to believe that God is holding out on them, because that's what the serpent says. He says, you won't surely die if you eat of that fruit. God, God's not... He's just holding out. There's something better for you if you'll disobey God. God's holding out on you. And they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by disobeying God, sin enters into God's perfect and holy creation. Now let's deal with that for a second. Because I've taught on this before. You've probably heard me teach on Genesis chapter 3. But I just want to remind you in case maybe there's some struggle here this morning. Or in case some wise guy know-it-all heathen comes to you and tells you, you know, that you and challenges your faith in God's word. And particularly about creation and about the first man and first woman. Because some smart aleck will always come up to you and say, I don't believe the Bible and here's why. What kind of God flies off the handle because you eat fruit? There's always somebody that will bring that one up to you. What kind of God flies off the handle and gets angry at anyone just because they eat a piece of fruit? And I bet you, well, I better not bet. No, I do. I bet you, I will say it, I bet you anyone who says something like that to you, they've never actually read the story. Here's how I know. Because not once, not ever in the Bible, does it ever say God got angry at Adam and Eve? Think about that. Go back and read it and check me. 
You read through the whole story about him. God is never says, I'm angry at you. He never gets angry. What you really, when I get the sense of when I read it, I don't read about an angry God in the Adam and Eve story. I read about a wounded and a disappointed and a broken God at the choice of the ones he loves so much. And if you're a parent who's ever had a, a child that's made a bad decision, you know exactly what that feels like. God told them, he said, don't, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. One rule, one rule. And God forbid them from disobeying him, not because he cares what kind of fruit you eat. He, diso- he forbid them because he cares about his relationship. With them, And by doing the one thing he told them not to do, they demonstrated a lack of trust in their creator. They demonstrated a lack of faith in their God. And they demonstrated ultimately that they, the creation, knew better than him, the creator. And God grieved because he knew that there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to destruction. He knew that this choice to step away from God's plan for their life would, count, would cost them greatly. See, God created you and I to be dependent upon Him. He is our source of life. He is our source of provision, our source of breath, our source of healing. No one walking the earth today is alive without God allowing it, without God making it so. No one takes their next breath without God willing it, without God making it so. And he knew that when Adam and Eve chose to go their own way, his beloved creation was rejecting the one who created them and sustained them. So God tells them what it means to live a life separate from their source. In Genesis chapter 3, he tells them, okay, if you want to separate yourself from my will, if you want to separate yourself from my plan and my purposes for your life, you are allowed to make that choice, but you need to understand what you're getting into. He says, you're going to end up working harder than I ever planned for you to have to work just to barely survive. He says, this perfect world I created for you, it's going to become cold and hard and rough, and it's going to become corrupted by your sin. He says this perfect relationship that you and I have with one another, it's going to become bitter and hostile. And he says the perfect relationship, Adam and Eve, that you had in your relationship, in your marriage, in your covenant, it's going to become bitter and hostile because sin doesn't just break our relationship with God. Sin breaks our relationship with one another. And if you keep reading the Bible after Genesis chapter 3, you realize that that one sin started a domino effect of a downward spiral of earth and, and humanity and creation falling into a sinful, dark, violent existence. Our Fire Institute group on Sunday nights, we've been studying the Old Testament the past few months. And what you realize when you read Genesis 3, it's all downhill from there. Genesis chapter 3, the one sin that seems so simple. We just ate a piece of fruit. But then the next chapter, one of their sons kills their other son. In the next chapter, there's even more violence. And you just keep reading through Genesis. And there's, it's this downward spiral of a beloved creation that's suffering in a, in a cycle of sin and sickness and violence and death. And in the midst of God telling His creation what the results of their sin would be and how it would affect them in the coming generations, in the midst of all of that, He still makes a promise to His people. He tells the woman in verse 15, He says, one day, he says, because you allowed sin and opened the door to sin, this world's not going to be what I meant for it to be. 
And it's going to become a dark, cold place. And it's going to become a place where there's going to be sin and violence and death and suffering and sickness. He said, I didn't do it. You did it. But I'm promising you something. One day, the offspring of this woman, he says this to Eve, the offspring of this woman. In the King James Version, it says the seed of the woman. He will come into conflict with the serpent who started the whole mess. And the serpent will bruise his heel, but this offspring, this seed, will crush the serpent's head. Now, it's important to realize the Bible talks a lot about offspring and seed. If you read the Bible, you even have whole chapters devoted to so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so It's over. The Bible is very much interested in whose offspring is whose and whose seed is whose and whose family is whose. Very much interested in that. But I want you to notice something. Nowhere else in the Bible does it ever use the phrase the offspring of a woman. Nowhere else in the Bible does it ever use the phrase the seed of a woman. Only in this passage of Scripture. Because most of the time when you talk about seed and offspring, it follows the male lineage. It follows the father The father sows the seed that produces a child. You following me, adults in the room? Nowhere else in Scripture does it talk about the woman having a seed. But here in this Scripture, for some reason, even in the very first chapters of the Bible, that God chooses to say there's going to be a woman who produces seed. And that seed is going to come into conflict with the serpent. And the serpent's going to strike the offspring but that offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. At some point, a woman, not a man, will produce a man who will enter into some sort of conflict with the deceiver, with the accuser, with the Satan. And the serpent will strike his heel, but the man will crush the serpent's head. And this is the first promise in the Bible that one day God will send us a Savior who will forever defeat the serpent who deceived us into sin in the first place. And we know that in in the New Testament, when you get to Luke chapter 2, which we read this morning, there was a virgin Mary who gave birth. And no man was involved in the process so that her child wasn't the seed of man, but her child was the seed of woman. And with no help or no assistance or contribution from any human man, she produced offspring that would be the firstborn son named Jesus. And you know the story, that woman, she produced a son. She named him Jesus. He grew in wisdom and stature and he grew with favor with man and with God. And at the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan and the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. And this Jesus, He began to preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. He began to heal the sick. And He began to raise the dead. He began to preach a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of king. He taught His followers a new way of living. Not the way Adam and Eve and all the generations after them lived, but a new way of living. The original intent for what God had planned for humanity. See, Jesus came to reverse everything that the serpent had caused at the very beginning. He taught crazy things like love one another, forgive one another, turn the other cheek. Don't react with violence, but react with love. Ultimately, he was arrested for treason, for preaching about a new kingdom and claiming to be a new kind of king. And this innocent, sinless man, he was arrested, he was tried, he was beaten, he was hung on a cross, a death deserved for the worst of criminals. He hung on a cross and while he's dying, he utters words of forgiveness for the very ones who killed him. 
They buried him in a nearby tomb. And the serpent laughed and thought I bruised his heel. I got him. Thinking he had won the day. But three days later, the man with the bruised heel overcame death. Come on. He appeared to the twelve and then he appeared to more than 500 more of his followers. In Genesis 3, sin, suffering, sickness, and death entered the world. But on Easter Sunday, sin, suffering, sickness, and death were conquered and defeated by a Savior, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh who overcame and trampled over death. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Where I want to focus this morning is the in-between period. Between Genesis chapter 3 and Luke chapter 2, there's a whole lot of history here in this book. You see, Genesis 3, when God first promised to send a Savior who would crush the head of the enemy, from Genesis 3 until Luke chapter 2, when the Savior was born in a manger in Bethlehem, there's a lot of time in between. There's a waiting period that took place. There was at least, probably more, but at least 4,000 years between the time that Jesus gave the promise, or God gave the promise, there'll be a seed of the woman who'll crush the head of the enemy. In Luke chapter 2, when Mary gave birth to Jesus, 4,000 years. 4,000 years of waiting on God to fulfill His promise. 4,000 years of waiting on God to rescue His creation from the suffering and sin and sickness and death that came when, when, when the serpent deceived human beings. 4,000 years of war and violence. 4,000 years of tragedy and heartbreak. 4,000 years of failure. Of 4,000 years of history. 4,000 years of waiting on God. God. And I just came by this morning to talk to some folks who've been waiting on God. Some folks who've been waiting on God. You're here this morning and you've got questions you've been waiting on God to answer. You're here this morning and you've got issues you've been waiting on God to deal with. You're here this morning and you've got a sickness or an illness you've been waiting on God to heal. You're here this morning and you're waiting on God to revive a marriage or a relationship. You're here this morning and you're waiting on God to provide that new job or that new position. You're here this morning and you're feeling broken and you're waiting on God to fix it. Your heart's hurting and you're waiting on God to heal it. Maybe it's not so much that you're struggling and believing God for your life, but you're just getting tired of waiting for the answer to come. You've got dreams, you've got plans, and you've got hopes, you've got prayer requests, and you've got desires, and the waiting is getting tiresome. Can I get a witness, anybody? It's getting harder to wait on God. And it's getting tempting to stop waiting on God and to start taking matters into your own hands and give up. 4,000 years of history waiting on God to make good on His promise to send a Savior, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the enemy. Now here's the big question. Why is God in the habit of making us wait? Here's the problem. 
I can't answer that question. And I would be very cautious of any preacher that tries to answer it. I don't know, and I'll be the first to admit that it's frustrating sometimes, waiting. But if you're looking for just easy answers this morning, I'm not the preacher for you today. There are things about God's timing and His planning I just don't understand. I don't get it. Anyone who tries to answer that question at some point, you just have to start guessing to answer the question why. Because that, the Bible is actually very silent when it comes to explaining these kinds of questions. See, the Bible reveals to us who God is, but the Bible is very, very rarely explains why God does what God does. And I think that's wisdom on the Bible's part. I think that's intentional. I think that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors of the Bible, of the Scripture, He, he inspired them to resist the urge to explain God's reasoning all the time. Because He knows us. And He knows if we try to get an explanation, we'll try to turn it into a formula. And we'll turn God into a vending machine instead of a God. And if I just push the right buttons and I put the right coins in, I can get the right result. But God is so much bigger than a vending machine and He's so much bigger than a slot machine. And we try to fit Him all into nice categories and put God in a box. And if He'll just explain Himself to me, I can figure Him out and He can fit in my box and that'll make me more comfortable. But I believe the Bible rarely explains God because God is not easily explained. If he could be completely explained, then he could be completely understood. And if he could be completely understood, he wouldn't be God. If you and I could fit God in our tiny little human brains and figure him out, the moment we figured him out, he would cease to be God. Because he's just too big to be contained in my tiny little brain. Why do we sometimes have to wait on God? I don't know. I don't know why we have to wait. The Bible says this, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. It also says that a day is like a ten thousand is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day to God. So he, he doesn't even see time the same way we do. He didn't even operate on the same schedule we do. So we might feel like four thousand years is waiting a long time for God. But God said, man, it was only four days. And sometimes four days can seem like an eternity. But I do know this. I can't think like God thinks. And guess what? God can't think like I think. Wait, God can't do something? You're right. He, he cannot think the way you and I think. God has never learned anything. We go to school to learn something, something we don't know. God already knows it all. He can't think the way... He, we have a problem in front of us or a situation in front of us and we'll get along. I like to drive and think and, and think about things and I'm trying to figure things out. God's never had to figure anything out. Nothing has ever occurred to God. He's never been up there in heaven and said, you know what, that just occurred to me. He's never had, he, but nothing's ever occurred. It's all just there. He can't think like we think. And we can't think like he thinks. So we can't always comprehend what he's doing. And we can't always explain why he does what he does. 
When we fire up our little brains, the wheels are turning, neurons are firing off, synapses are connecting. We're trying to learn. We're trying to connect. We're trying to figure something out and understand something. God doesn't have to do any of that. So I think the Bible is long on revelation about God and short on explanation of God because God is so much bigger than our brains could ever imagine or comprehend. He thinks so much differently than us. He operates with a whole different set of tools, a whole different set of problems, a whole different set of issues and a whole different set of solutions. So when we ask, why are we waiting on God? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I wish it did sometimes. I wish when you come to me and you sit in my office across from my desk and you're asking me the why questions, I wish I could pull a chapter and verse and tell you this is why, but I can't. I don't know how to answer the why question. When you come to me and you say, why did this loved one get sick? Why did that friend die? Why did that child walk away from their walk with God? Why do I feel this way? Why why does the enemy keep attacking me? Why does it seem like my prayer life is unfruitful? Why am I still struggling? Why are things getting better? Why are my prayers being answered? It's frustrating for me as a pastor, and I know it's frustrating for you. The truth is, though, we can't answer those questions. Maybe one day in eternity on the other side of the veil... Maybe we'll understand some of it, but I got a feeling none of it's going to matter then anyway. For whatever reason, some of us in the room this morning, God has you simply in a waiting season. You're waiting on God to answer. You're waiting on God to speak. You're waiting on God to heal. And I want to gently suggest to you, and I don't say this from a position of of looking down because I've been in the same boat. But I want to gently suggest to you that you start asking different questions. See, the reality is is that no one has to answer the why question and be careful of anyone who tries to answer the why question. The Bible is relatively silent when it gives the why. And you know, people say the dumbest things when they're trying to explain the why. They just say the most idiotic things. I'll just give you some personal example. I have, I would say, in my 31 years of life, experience more death than the average person that's 31 years old would experience. I would just guess that. And people will say stupid things to you when they're trying to make you feel better about things that you're going through. Well, God just needed another little angel. What? First of all, there's so many theological issues with that one statement that we can't... God doesn't need anything, number one. Number two, when you die, you do not become an angel. Number three, he's already got tens of thousands of angels. He doesn't need one more. So let's just, you know, people say dumb things like that, though. And they think they're helping. Doesn't help me at all. I needed them. That's how you feel. So people, when they try to make the why things up and all all this kind of stuff, well, maybe this is why or maybe Just, I don't think there's very much benefit going down that road. So here's the shift I want to encourage you to make. Instead of asking, why am I waiting on God? Start asking, what should I be doing while I'm waiting on God? The Bible rarely speaks to the why, but the Bible often speaks to the what. God wants to guide you through this season of waiting by giving you some specific instructions on how to wait properly. Three things, and I'm going to be done. I'm going to be very quick. Number one, it's simple. Pray. Now, I can sense the like, really, another sermon on prayer, Pastor? That's really what we're going to talk about. 
I've got these huge, massive questions about life and waiting on God and when God's going to come through, and you just tell me to pray. There's just disappointment in the room that, Pastor, you're telling us to pray once again. 4,000 years of biblical history. Genesis chapter 3, when the Savior is first promised, to Genesis or Luke chapter 2, when the Savior is born. And for 4,000 years, the people of Israel are learning how to pray. You read the Old Testament. You spend time reading from Genesis chapter 3 up until the arrival of Jesus. A good portion of the Old Testament is just people praying. In fact, the longest book in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, it's all about praying. Sometimes it's praying to music, or sometimes it's a song or a poem, but it's all prayer. It's all poetry. Yes, prayer is the answer to what do I do while I wait. 4,000 years of history. Some of us, we need to hear this because we give up praying after four days. Well, I prayed four days in a row for God to answer this prayer and He just didn't answer. I'll do you one better. We're going to have prayer time here in a minute. Some of y'all won't make it four minutes at the altar seeking the Lord. I have trouble making it four minutes sometimes. So it's not just, I'm not saying y'all, it's us. We have trouble Making it for 4,000 years, God's people prayed for salvation. 4,000 years, God's people prayed for a Savior to come and rescue them from their sin. And all throughout the Old Testament, you read of the people of God praying for God to deliver them, praying for God to send a Savior, praying for them to send him, him to send a Messiah. In fact, sometimes it's whole chapters of the Bible. I just picked one at random. And Psalm 72, for example, here's some scripture about where the people of Israel are praying for the Messiah. And they're praying for someone to save them. And they say, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May in his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Look at this chapter, verse 11 of Psalm 72. May all kings fall before him and all nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. Who's that sound like? That sounds like Jesus to me. They were praying hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus came. We need a Jesus. We need a Savior. We need somebody who cares about the poor, who cares about the sick, who cares about the humble, because all the other politicians don't. Every other ruler doesn't. They're all out for themselves. We need a just king, a righteous king. And they're crying out for hundreds, thousands of years for God to send. They're praying, seeking God. While they're waiting, they're praying. Now during the waiting season, while we're waiting on God, we tend to give up on praying because we think, we think that the purpose of praying is to eliminate the waiting. But we see in Scripture that prayer doesn't always shorten the wait. Prayer isn't about getting God to do something on our timetable. It's not about getting God to show up sooner. Let me put it this way. The purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God into doing what you think God ought to do. Instead, the purpose of prayer is to grow closer and become more like the one to whom you're praying. 
Let me say that again because it just went over some people's. The purpose of prayer is not to manipulate God into doing what you think God ought to do. The purpose of prayer is to grow closer to and more like the one you pray to. We pray not necessarily to get him to show up sooner or to show out bigger, but we pray so that we can recognize him when he arrives. One of the biggest heartbreaks in Scripture is that when Jesus is born and when he begins his public ministry, he has fulfilled every one of the over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about who the Messiah will be, yet most of God's people didn't recognize him. The religious leaders rejected him. The political leaders rejected him. They had been praying for a Savior, but they prayed for a Savior that looked the way they thought he ought to look. And so they were praying differently from God's plan for their lives. And so they were praying for a military leader who was going to come and take over and kick rear end and take names. That's what they were praying for. But instead, they got a carpenter who heals the sick and talks about love and forgiveness. And they missed that actually that was the plan all along. Some of the people couldn't recognize Jesus, God in the flesh, for who he was because he didn't look what like what they had been praying for. But if you're really praying to get to know God, you get to know his heart, you draw close to him. And the Bible says he draws close to you. You get acquainted with God in the prayer closet and then you know how to recognize him when he shows up. If you're waiting, pray. But don't just pray for God to do something. Make your prayer time about becoming more like him and getting to know him better and understanding his heart more. And when you do that, you'll be able to recognize when he's moving and acting in your life. Number two, prophesy. While they were waiting all throughout 4,000 years of history, the people of God continued to prophesy about the day when a Savior would finally come and rescue them. And you almost can't find a page in this book where there isn't a prophecy about the coming Savior. It's almost hard to find anywhere in this book where they're not talking about a Savior coming and God fulfilling His promise. God's people, listen, are prophetic people. God's people know how to hear God's Word. God's people know how to hear God's voice. They know how to hear His promises. And they know how to speak out God's Word and proclaim His promises even in the midst of great difficulty and in long sessions of waiting. If you're waiting on God, start praying and start prophesying. Well, preacher, that sounds weird. I'm not a prophet. I don't know about that prophesying business. I don't know how to prophesy. Oh, yes, you do. Show of hands, who's got ears? Show of hands, who knows how to read at least on a kindergarten level? Okay. Show of hands, how many of you, you know how to make breath go over your vocal cords and shape your mouth, lips, and tongues to make a word come out of your mouth? Yeah, everybody in the room does. Guess what? You know how to prophesy. What do you mean? You know how to hear. You know how to read. You know how to get a word. You know how to hear God speak to your heart. And all prophesying is, is receiving that word and receiving that promise and then speaking it out with your mouth. So in the season of waiting, you're praying, you're getting to know God, you're getting to know his word, you're getting to know his plan and his purposes for your life. And then you start speaking it 
out. You start declaring it. You start writing it down. You start putting it on notes. You start making, making it and declaring, then prophesying, simply hearing God speak what God is saying to you. Maybe it's saying it to you through a verse of Scripture. Maybe He's speaking to you to your heart through a gift of, uh, a gift of the Spirit, but He's speaking to you and you're speaking it out, what He has said. You're writing it down, what God has spoken, and here's what you're going to do. While you're waiting on God, you've got something you need God to do. You've got something you, you, you've got a miracle you need God to perform. You've got a need that you're asking God to fulfill. And you're going to start praying about it during the season of waiting. And you're going to take it to the Lord in prayer. But your prayer life is not just you complaining to God about what you need. Your prayer life is about you listening to God what you need. And you're going to listen to for his voice and you're going to listen to his word and you're going to listen for every time he gives you a promise. And then you're going to get yourself a sticky note. You're going to get an index card and you're going to get a journal. You're going to get a, a dry erase marker on your mirror in your bathroom and you're going to start prophesying what God gives you. You're going to start writing down every promise in scripture that relates to that need. You're going to start speaking out every time you have a thought about that need or that desire. You're going to quote the scripture. You're going to say what God God has said, and you're speaking prophetically into your life. You're going to write it down. You're going to speak it out. You're going to start declaring it. Every time the serpent comes and tries to get you to doubt, you just pull your sticky note out and say, no, devil, your word doesn't matter. God's word is true in my life. You, every time he tries to whisper seeds of doubt, you pull out the book and you say, no, devil, this word is true, not your word. And you start, you put it on your dashboard and you put it on your mirror and you put it on your phone home screen and you put it on your refrigerator and you put it on your desk at work and you prophesy the promises of God while you wait. And as you read the Bible, you'll find that God gave his people prophetic promises in the middle of the worst of circumstances. They're in Egypt making bricks for Pharaoh without any straw as slaves and they're still praying and prophesying. They're in Babylon, enslaved and displaced by a wicked Babylonian emperor. And they're still praying and prophesying all through the scripture. They say it might look bad, but we just believe God's going to come through for us. We might be in the fiery furnace and you might put us in there, but my God's going to deliver me. And they just speak prophetically, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how hot the fire gets, no matter how dark the night gets, they prophesy a better future. They say weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. They prophesy, God is my Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord that heals me. Habakkuk chapter 2. God gives the prophet a word. He says to the prophet, he says, write down the vision I give you. Write it down. Make it plain on tablets. So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not die. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What's that mean? It means write down the promise God gave you. And when it seems like it's taken for the promise to, forever for the promise to come, don't you worry. It's not going to delay. It's not as slow as you think it is. It's going to come in exactly the right time. You just keep prophesying it. So today, when you get home, you pick up a piece of paper somewhere, you say, you know what? I've been waiting on God to do something. I'm going to start praying about it, and I'm going to start not just complaining to God in prayer, but I'm going to start growing closer to the Lord in prayer while I'm waiting. I want to be more like Him. I want to know His heart better. I want to have a better relationship with Him while I'm waiting for Him to come through with 
through for me. I'm just going to make sure I draw close to him because the Bible says if I draw close to him, he'll draw close to me. That's assignment number one. Number two, he's going to start promising you some things. You're going to read in your Bible the promises of Scripture. He's going to start speaking to your heart about the promises. He's going to start, you're going to read about how he promises to heal the sick, how he promises to bind up the brokenhearted and heal those who are suffering, how he promises to raise the dead. And you're going to start writing it down and you're going to put it in your journal. You're going to put it in your phone, in your notes app. You're going to put it down. And every time there's a doubt, you're going to pull it back up. Every time there's a struggle, you're going to go back to the promise, go back to the word. You're going to pray and you're going to prophesy. And you're not just going to read it. You're going to say it out loud. You're going to say it so you can hear it and so the devil can hear it too. I'm going to remind myself every time. I'm going to remind the devil every time he comes against me. I'm going to speak the promises of God over my life while I wait. Number three, lastly, prepare. Pastor Katie, you can go ahead and come up. Actually, the whole team can, can make their way up. I want to do that last song, goodness of God. Lastly, prepare. For 4,000 years, they have been praying and prophesying for a Savior. But the ultimate tragedy of the Bible was they were pretty good at praying for a Savior to come. They were pretty good at prophesying about the Savior to come. They weren't real good at preparing for the Savior to come. When He showed up, they didn't recognize Him. They weren't ready to follow Him. That's why Jesus would say, you know, narrows the gate if you want to follow me, but wide is the gate if you want to follow the world. So many people, they weren't prepared to choose the path, the narrow path Jesus had laid out for them. They hadn't prepared their heart to be obedient to the Savior when He came. They hadn't prepared their heart to follow the Messiah when He came. Before Jesus stepped into public ministry, a man named John the Baptist, who was actually Jesus' cousin on His mother's side, a man named John the Baptist was raised up as the last prophet of the age. And he had a life assignment. His life's message was this, Luke 3. He went into all the region around Jordan. This is John the Baptist. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John the Baptist's job was to come on scene and start prophesying the Savior is going to come in this generation are you prepared? Is your heart ready to follow God? Repent of your sin and, and choose to follow Him. Are you ready? Are you ready when He shows up? Let me ask you this. You've been praying for a miracle. Are you preparing for the miracle? You've been praying for God to heal your marriage. Are you prepared to put in the work to heal your marriage? You've been praying for God to bring that son or that daughter back into the fall. Are you prepared to welcome them back? We've been praying for revival. We've been praying for lost souls to come and, 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 and find Jesus and, and be, be, become part of the church and find hope in Jesus and be healed and set free. Are we prepared for them? Are we ready to welcome them? Are we ready to make them known? The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, just before Jesus is born. 
well, 400 years, but you turn the page and there's a 400-year gap. But the last prophecy that God gives the people before Jesus is born is this. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to stand with me for just a moment. This scripture here, it's the last prophecy about a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. And he says, if you're not prepared to follow the Messiah when he comes, if you're too arrogant, if you're too stiff-necked, if you're too strong-willed, if you're too proud to follow the Savior when he comes, this, this Savior, he'll, he'll cut you down. you're not prepared you're not prepared to receive him there's only one other option destruction but for those who fear my name those who have prepared themselves to receive the Lord if you prepare yourself the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings You'll leap like cast from the stall. You'll be, you, you, you will have a hope. You'll have a future. You'll be blessed. And in fact, the next couple of verses talk about, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to sons and hearts of sons to fathers. He even talks about healing relationships in the family. If you will prepare for what God has for you, it'll bless you. I think sometimes we pray. Sometimes we even prophesy. But sometimes we don't prepare for what God wants to do in our life. This morning, I want to ask you, they're going to lead us in worship and sing this song, The Goodness of God. And I want to say, I just want to invite you to come forward. If you need a miracle, if you're in a waiting season, what does that mean? If you're waiting for God to heal a broken heart, if you're waiting for God to heal a disease, if you're waiting for God to answer a prayer, if you're waiting for God to just uh, fulfill this desire of your heart, whatever it might be, if you're in a season of waiting, I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you that God would just empower you to, and give you a promise and give you a prophetic word that you can stand on. And I want to pray for you that God would give you the grace and the ability to prepare for the answer to come. I believe he has an answer for you this morning. There was a dark, dark world, dark, dark world leading up to the birth of Jesus. 4,000 years of history. God said, pray, prophesy, prepare joy will come. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we begin to worship this morning, I pray, Lord, that as those step out that need special prayer, God, that you would just equip us and empower us, Lord, to stand on your word. Lord, that we would pray not just to get what we want, but we would pray to become more like you. Lord, that we would uh, begin to prophesy and receive those prophetic promises to speak over our life and over the lives of our families, Lord. And Lord, that we would prepare our hearts for what you're about to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, they're going to lead us. Would you step out? And I want to pray with you. Oh.
could 